0: Friends, my name is Christine Chapel and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Steve Byers about his book, Overcoming Bitterness: Moving from Life's Greatest Hurts to a Life Filled with Joy. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Steve Byers has served as a pastor and biblical counselor at Faith Church and Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries In Lafayette, Indiana, since 1987. A frequent speaker at conferences, colleges, and seminaries, he also serves on the boards of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Vision of Hope, and the Faith Community Development Corporation. Steve has authored numerous books, including Putting Your Past in Its Place, Moving Forward in Freedom and Forgiveness. He and his wife, Chris, have three children and four grandchildren. Hey there, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today.
1: Christine, thanks a lot for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Me too. I have been looking forward to it for a while. You have been on my radar to talk to on the show specifically. Well, actually, you have a number of books I'd like to talk to you about, but specifically for this conversation to discuss your one of your newest books called Overcoming Bitterness Moving from Life's Greatest Hurts to a Life Filled with Joy. But before we get too far along in our conversation today, I wonder if you would spend a few minutes telling us why you wanted to write a book on the topic of overcoming bitterness?
1: Well, you know, I've had the privilege of serving as a biblical counselor now for over 35 years. And one of the observations that I've made is that bitterness often comes up in those counseling cases, whether it be with individuals, um, couples, families. And I'm not suggesting that someone would say on their entry form, the reason I'm coming for counseling is because I struggle with bitterness. In fact, I, I think it would be rare for someone to say that. But as you get into whatever it is that the person wanted to talk about first, and you begin to unpack the story, and you learn more about what's happening in the dynamics, not just of the behavior, but of the heart, it becomes apparent that bitterness is part of the story. In fact, you might even believe that it would be wisest for you to set aside some things that you may have been talking about and pivot over to bitterness and try to get that addressed to some degree, because otherwise... Whatever other thing you're working on in counseling is not going to go very well because there's this, shall we say, background noise of bitterness. But, but honestly, Christine, and this is true of a lot of things that I write and even preaching and everything, there's a personal component to, to it. Um, I've had the privilege of serving at the same church now for over 35 years. It's been a marvelous privilege. I, I'm living my dream, so to speak. So there's many, many blessings, but there's also some disappointment. There's some pain. There's some hurt. So I, I struggle with bitterness. I have to work every day at how am I going to process that hurt? How am I going to process those disappointments? And the older you get, the larger the pile gets. And, and so it's just something it was good for me. Um, as I started thinking about, you know, that particular response may have been coming out of a bitter heart. You need you need to work on that. And and you know, I I have no trouble acknowledging as a pastor that I struggle with bitterness. And it's it's interesting to me that for some people, they're surprised by that. I was just down in the Dominican Republic doing a series of talks, including a conference on bitterness, and it started on Friday night. Uh, the church was just completely packed. Then the next morning, a pastor came up to me who had heard those talks and said, you know, I'm really surprised. I was counting, and in the talks last night, you acknowledged seven different times throughout the course of the talk that you struggle with some aspect of bitterness. He said, I'm not used to hearing pastors be that open about ways that they are struggling. And and that struck me as odd. My predecessor, Bill Good, who was a leader in the biblical counseling movement in the very early days, used to have a saying around our church that there's only one perfect person around this church that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of us are just trying to grow to become more and more like him. And so why did I write the book? I see it in counseling, but I also see it in the life of the guy whose face I see in the mirror every morning, namely myself. And so I I wanted to do more of biblical study to help myself and those God has placed around me to grow.
0: I wonder now, as we move into the topic, if you would help us to define bitterness, maybe what it means to be bitter from a biblical perspective?
1: Yeah, you know, this is one of the reasons I think we should just love the Word of God when we look at this topic through the perspective of definition. Because the the words in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Mara, in the New Testament, Picrea, It's a very picturesque word group in Scripture, and and that says something about how much God loves us, that he chooses terminology that grabs our attention. Because, you know, the word, just in terms of the way food would taste, something that's sour, that's brackish, um, we we know how that tastes. Well, God picks up that exact same word group, and he talks about how it's possible to, to live in that particular way. And so one of the Bible dictionaries defines the word group like this. It's the poisonous putrid bile from the gallbladder or the gallbladder itself or the poison of snakes. There's our loving God trying to grab our attention. This is what bitterness is like. This is what it feels like to be bitter. It's the the poisonous bile of the gallbladder. Yeah, we we know what, what that feeling is like. There's other English definitions, feeling angry, hurt, or resentful because of one's bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment, or another English dictionary, inner emotional feelings of deep sorrow or an outwardly directed anger that that cries out. But what an incredibly powerful series of definitions that help us begin to understand, yep, that was a bitter thought. Yep, that that was a bitter desire. Those were bitter words. That was a bitter action. And that's the other aspect of the definition that I think is very important. And, and honestly, it somewhat surprised me as I got involved in study, because the Bible does use bitterness in three very distinct um, ways. One is bitter behavior. That's the one that I think we would think about first, like Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all wrath and anger and bitterness be put away from you with all malice. Well, that, that's bitter behavior. We know we should not speak in a bitter way. We shouldn't act in a bitter way. However, when you start drilling into the scripture, it also speaks about bitterness in two other ways. The one that surprised me was bitter circumstances. It struck me how often in the Bible, when you see the word bitter, it's not something I do, it's something I face. So, for example, you have Sweet Hannah in the Bible, and she's struggling with infertility. And and I realize even when I raise that topic, I'm sure many of your listeners are struggling with infertility. So as a man, when I raise that topic, I'm always very cautious because I know that's very, very painful, which is the point, because the scripture goes on to say that Hannah had a rival who would provoke her because of her infertility in a bitter fashion Think about how hard it would be to already be struggling with infertility and then to have somebody mocking you about it. The the Bible refers to that as a bitter circumstance. It wasn't Hannah's fault. She she had nothing to do with it. It it had to do with a circumstance, the sinful treatment of someone else. Another example of that is Joseph. It's fascinating on Jacob's deathbed. he, He brings his sons around and he talks to them about the way they've lived their life the future they should express. And when he gets to Joseph, he he says, the the, the archers shot bitter arrows at you. You talk about an awkward moment. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Joseph's brothers. Here's another example of someone who Joseph did not bring that on himself. Or we also read when the children of Israel were enslaved, that the Egyptians tasked them with, with bitter work circumstances. And so now we understand bitterness isn't just something that I do. Bitterness is a condition I face. And that means that for me, for you, for every one of our readers, every one of our listeners, every one of our counselees, we all have bitterness in our life in the sense that we're living in a sin-cursed world and we face bitter circumstances each and every day. So then that leads to this question from a definitional perspective. Well, if we face bitter circumstances each and every day, does that mean I have to become a bitter person? Then why would God say, don't be bitter in my behavior? Well, the the, the third aspect of the definition, and it's really the the connecting piece, is the possibility of having a bitter heart. Proverbs 14.10, I think, is one of the most powerful verses on this topic, that the heart knows its own bitterness. And so that's where this war is going to be fought. And Lord willing, that's where the war is going to be won. So again, we all face bitter circumstances. We cannot get away from that in this life. But God says we're not to respond in a bitter fashion. And the way we obey that through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by doing battle with these matters at the level of the heart.
0: Just building off what you were saying, Steve, it reminded me of a quote that you wrote where you said that bitterness is not first a response, it is first a reality. And so I love the fact that you're really driving our focus to that. And I wonder if you could tell us, you know, on our quest to overcome bitterness, why is it important for us to acknowledge the fact that it is first a reality?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's wise for each one of us to ask ourselves the question, do I have any bitterness in my life? It's certainly wise when we're talking to our friends and in a counseling situation to ask the question, do you think you have any bitterness in your life? The the correct biblical answer to that question is always yes. It's always yes. This side of heaven, living in a sin-cursed world, we're always going to have disappointments. We're always going to have hurts. That's part of the human experience. And so if we're unwilling to acknowledge that, then it's highly likely we're not doing business with it in our hearts. And, and, you know, the book of Hebrews has a powerful discussion about bitterness in chapter 12. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, see to it. It, It's the Greek word episkopeo. Be, Be very, very careful that no root of bitterness, that you come short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and defiles many. But see to it. It's almost like you're a gardener who's looking very, very carefully for weeds. And so we all face bitter circumstances. The question is, am I going to be honest about that? And then am I going to give attention to what's going on in the heart in the way I'm responding to the disappointments and the hurts of life? Because otherwise my heart is going to become like a very weedy garden. There's going to be bitter thoughts. Growing up, there's going to be bitter desires. Growing up, and invariably, that will result in bitter behavior over time.
0: So, in thinking about how we might respond in a faithful way to the bitter circumstances, you know, that we face in life, you mention a few different types of responses, and one of them being bitter lament. You, you call it the power of bitter lament, and so I wonder if you could explain what bitter lament is and what's so powerful about it?
1: Well I believe part of our sufferology, part of the way that we handle trials and difficulties in this life is to learn how to cry out directly to God. And it's interesting when we study the book of Psalms, which is our worship hymnal, so to speak, that at least a third of those psalms are written in the minor key. At least a third of our psalms are laments. And I'm not sure that we do a good job, and I sure I would certainly say this for myself. Of taking the pain and taking the hurt, taking the disappointment directly to the throne of God, just like the psalmist so oftenly does. And so if that's a new topic to one of your listeners, I would encourage them to start maybe in a place like Psalm 13, where where you have the, the psalmist crying out to the Lord with authenticity here's my hurts, here's my pains, here's my questions. I I think, to be honest with the text, we would even have to say, here's my complaints. A commentator writing about Habakkuk, which also contains a very clear lament at the beginning of the book, said this, God's the friend of the honest doubter who dares to talk to God rather than about him. That's really what lament is. So how do I process these bitter circumstances? I go directly to the Lord. Another great verse, Psalm 61, 1 and 2. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That, that's the process of lament. And this commentator went on to say this. Prayer that includes an element of questioning God may be a means of increasing one's faith. Expressing doubts and crying out about unfair situations in the universe shows one's trust in God and one's confidence that God should and does have an answer to humanity's insoluble problems. I fully agree with that. And a a book that has recently been written on the topic of lament was from one of my friends here in Indiana, down in Indianapolis, Mark Vrogop, who wrote the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a book about lament. And I found that that can be very, very helpful in the counseling process itself. And I've also... more recently, had counselees actually write out their own personal lament. And so they would model it after one of the Psalms of Lament, but they would personalize it. They would take their questions about the specific things they've been facing to the Lord, their hurts, their disappointments, their complaints, and then follow the process of lament that many times results in greater trust in the Lord, even when all the questions may not be answered in this life. But at least I, I practiced authenticity in my relationship with the Lord, and I took that pain directly to Him.
0: We actually spoke with Pastor Mark about practicing lament on the show some episodes ago. And so if you are interested after listening to Steve talk about this topic, you can scroll down in the show notes and click the link there. And that will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can check out that episode on hope and help for practicing lament. So that might be a good supplement to this conversation today. Steve, it also may be a surprise for our listeners to learn how frequently the scriptures talk about the place of crying, bitter tears, and how doing so can become a means of grace that motivates us toward meaningful action. There was a section in the book where you talk about this that was especially refreshing to me. So I'd love for you to unpack what bitter tears are.
1: Well, and I don't know that when the Bible talks about bitter tears that it's always speaking about literal tears. I, I think each one of us processes emotion in different ways, and I'm, I'm certainly not taking the position that unless a person is physically crying on a regular basis, then they're not honestly going through the progressive sanctification process. that, that That's not what I mean. But what I'm talking about is the tendency on the part of some of us to just, ignore the emotional pain, to act as if it didn't exist. It's more of a big boys don't cry mentality. And um, here in Indiana, Peyton Manning was the quarterback for the Colts for a long time. So everybody loves Peyton Manning and they love the commercials that he does. And and he did a commercial once after he um, retired from the NFL, where he was working with a barista who had hot steam blow right in his face. He fell down to the ground. And so Peyton Manning said, just rub some dirt on it. Well, that's a typical football player way of thinking about pain. And regrettably, I think sometimes that's the way we as followers of Jesus Christ think about it. Maybe we believe that, well, I'm always supposed to have this plastic smile. I'm always supposed to say that things are fine. I'm always supposed to be characterized by joy and nothing but joy, etc., cetera, et cetera, w- without being willing to honestly acknowledge to God and to others um, what might be going on in my heart and my life. And so that's why when, when you just study the word bitter in the Bible and see how frequently it's connected to the word tears, there, there's a level of authenticity in Scripture that I don't always find in my own life. And I, I say that as a pastor, and, and I say that to my own shame. And I'm, it, it, even as I read Pastor Vrogop's book and considered the issue of lament more thoroughly than I had before— it wasn't as an academic exercise for a sermon or even a professional exercise to be a better counselor. I had to think about that in my own heart and life, and, and I do believe that I have to work, even as an older man at this point in the ballgame, I have to work at being more honest and authentic about what is happening around me and what is happening in me, and the price of not doing that is I'm not going to be motivated to go to the throne of God to receive the kind of grace and the kind of help that I so desperately need.
0: Yeah, I really connect with what you just said. It reminded me of a time... A few years ago where our family had a house fire and I found myself, you know, basically feeling allergic to tears that I would sense tears wanting to come or just from overwhelm and all of the different distress that we faced and being displaced from our home and what rebuilding would look like. And I, I just noticed in myself this, this reflex almost to, like you said, stuff that down ignore it. I can be strong. I'm going to get through this. I'm trusting the Lord it's going to be okay. And and somehow I just began to feel like why are you being allergic to tears right now? Like there's nowhere in the Bible that says thou shall not cry tears when distressing circumstances or bitter circumstances take place. And so I appreciate your encouragement to authentically engage those emotions when they come instead of avoiding or ignoring them because that is a means of grace to communicate through lament. To the lord in that way so thank you for that
1: it's interesting that you would use that illustration because just this past summer my family and i we live in a small subdivision of five homes completely surrounded by ravines and so it's a it's a beautiful setting in which to live and our next door neighbor had a just a gorgeous log home and um, they were in europe and um Their home caught fire. And so me and the neighbor on the other side grabbed hoses and we did everything that we could to save our neighbor's house, but we weren't able to. By the time the fire department got there, it was engulfed in flames and literally burned to the ground. And even though it was not my home, I I loved my neighbors. I hated seeing what happened to them. That was a traumatizing event. And I. I was in shock. I I had never experienced anything where I was that close to a fire before where I had seen something that I was just used to seeing every day literally disappear. And um, that was a traumatizing event for me. And so even trying to figure out how to process that as a neighbor was challenging. And I just can't imagine what it would be like for someone where it was their house. So just to try to figure out now, What does lament sound like in this situation? What does it feel like? What happens if I don't? What are the potential pitfalls of not doing this? And so I found myself, because each day I would drive back home up my driveway and my neighbor's house is gone, and just having to process that, even through my relationship with the Lord, it's powerful stuff.
0: Yeah, I landed on the statement that just because it could be worse doesn't mean it isn't hard. Nobody died in the fire. Right, It could have been worse, but I didn't need to live in that space of, oh, that means that everything's fine. I can be honest about how hard it is with the Lord and be okay with that. It's okay to be sad about sad things while still looking to the Lord for help and hope. Well, Steve, we've spent a good amount of time taking an honest look at what you call, quote, the poison of bitter circumstances. But I'd like for us to segue to taking an honest look at when bitterness becomes sinful. And you write that, quote, sinful bitterness in the heart always begins with misplaced desires. Why is that true?
1: Well, I think that's true in sanctification in general. One of the more important verses in the New Testament about how we grow and change is James 1, 14 and 15. And it's comprehensive. Every man is tempted to sin when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And so that tells me that sin begins with what I want. And so it's very wise for all of us, and certainly in the counseling room, we're not, we're not behaviorists. We're, we're dealing at the level of the heart. And so ultimately, we do want to find out, what am I wanting so badly that I'm willing to sin when I don't get it? Or, or what am I wanting so badly that I'm willing to sin in order to get it? What do I characteristically want that gets me in trouble? Or what do I want from a particular person or a particular situation that gets me into trouble? And those are contemplative moments. I I don't generally have that kind of thought while standing in line at a fast food restaurant. I have to purposely ask the Holy Spirit to help me carefully evaluate in given situations what is it that I'm wanting. And back to bitter circumstances um, that we all face, I I can't change that. We we live in a sin-cursed world. I I can't necessarily change those bitter circumstances, but I can carefully ask, now, what does that bitter circumstance reveal about the uh, identity of my true God, my functional God? Because my desires, it's it's an expression of worship. We're, We're not passive victims. That's a very important biblical truth, I think. We're active worshipers. I can't control what others are doing to me, but I can control what I choose to think, what I choose to want, who I choose to worship in that moment. That's the playing field on which bitterness and the battle of bitterness is going to be waged, is am I going to let the power of the gospel help me contemplate, evaluate the nature of my thoughts, the nature of my desires, and if they're pleasing to God, to pursue them, but if they're displeasing to God, to confess them, to put them off and replace them with what's right. That's the bitterness battlefield. And in the power of the gospel, it can be won at that level.
0: You also write that, quote, a biblical understanding of God's discipline in our life is one of the most important keys to avoiding sinful bitterness. So, how then are those who have been made to face bitter circumstances to rightly think about the topic of God's discipline in their lives?
1: Yeah, I realize that's not a very popular topic, and I I don't hear many people saying much about God's discipline. However, as I mentioned before, Hebrews chapter 12 is one of the seminal chapters in the Bible about bitterness. Well, the chapter doesn't begin in bitterness. It begins by talking about God's fatherly discipline. And I think what trips many of us up is when we think discipline, we automatically think punitive. In other words, I'm receiving some sort of a consequence for something bad I did. That's not the way the word discipline is used in Scripture exclusively. It can mean that, but that's not the way it's used in Hebrews chapter 12 and other places in the Bible. God's fatherly discipline, and and Hebrews says it's proof that he loves us, it's God allowing a, a mixture of blessings and trials in my life perfectly blended to help me become more like Jesus Christ. The day God stops allowing that kind of discipline in my life, according to Hebrews, would be a day he doesn't love me. It would be a day that he's no longer functioning as my heavenly father. This is one of the reasons why I am a bit hesitant to discuss discipline with persons that I don't have the opportunity of having a back-and-forth conversation with. I realize this will be heard by people in all sorts of different life situations, and I want to do it as carefully, gently, and compassionately as I can. But I would just encourage all of us to review what Hebrews chapter 12 says about one of the proofs of God's love is that he allows a blend, not just of blessings, but also challenges. He's a God who disciplines us for our good. And how can he use the bitter circumstances in my life as a means of helping me become more like his son? And if I reject his discipline, if I spurn his discipline, if I refuse to be thankful for the difficulties in my life, that's part of what sets me on the path of bitterness because remember hebrews 12 15 says see to it that no one comes short of the grace of god his grace is available to help me handle these bitter circumstances but if i choose to kick against them or not believe there's any value in them that's where the root of bitterness starts and it's a root of fundamentally of unbelief And that's why the passage goes on and speaks about the poster boy of bitterness, Esau, who who was a profane man because he did not accept God's discipline in his life. And he became embroiled in a bitter heart and it ruined his life spiritually. I think we can think about discipline, not just punitively, because many times that's not the way it's used in the word of God. We, We could call it sanctificational discipline. In other words, it's one of God's means of grace. It's one of God's means of growth in my heart and life. This is where his sovereignty comes into the conversation. If we believe that God sovereignly allows both the blessings, but also the bitter circumstances in our life for a reason, then there has to be a benefit to it. And that's why verse 11 says of Hebrews 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful that may be one of the biggest understatements in the Bible, right? Yeah, I agree with that. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We just had a situation in our church where we had a a young couple that was heading for Japan. Um, He had just graduated from our seminary. He and his wife were just beginning to Uh, raised their support. We were so excited for them. She started feeling poorly, went to the doctor, received a diagnosis of cancer, and died within six months. And so we just recently had her funeral. There's so much about that that hurts. I'm not even going to pretend that there's not incredible pain, unbelievable questions on the part of our entire church family. This man her parents etc etc it's such a hard hard situation and yet it was interesting to hear him during the funeral because the husband actually spoke as a, a young seminary graduate and he began to talk about some of the ways that perhaps god could use that in his ministry in japan i wouldn't have wanted that for a second if i was the sovereign god i would have voted against it but i'm not the sovereign god And I do believe that he allows all sorts of trials, bitter circumstances in my life and in the life of others, in part, to help grow me. He he has my best spiritual interest in mind. And that's, that's where Christianity becomes a thinking person's religion. We have to think very carefully and biblically about the bitter circumstances in our life if we're going to be trained for peace and righteousness.
0: Yeah, I love that phrase, training and righteousness. And I think it has taken me a number of years to start thinking in that way when bitter circumstances come what can God bring from this? What can I learn, right? Because like the verse you just talked about, those who have been trained by it insinuates that there's a willingness to be trained mm-hmm. and a willingness to receive the instruction as it comes, even though it's not pleasant in the moment. And so thank you for helping us to think a little bit more in depth about that. What we're talking about today is just scratching the surface of what you cover in the book, and so I definitely encourage the listeners to get a copy of it if they want to dig into this topic more for themselves. But we've got time for a few more questions. So, Steve, I want to have you talk a bit about what you call, quote, the ladders of God's grace and strength to climb out of the bitterness that people find themselves enslaved to. And so while we don't have time to explore all of those grace ladders, I wonder if you could briefly share a few key principles for change and growth that you often encourage your counselees with.
1: Well, I think that God's Word has key passages about progressive sanctification or how to grow. And that's one of the things I love about God's Word. It doesn't just tell me what I'm supposed to be, but it tells me how to get there. I also love the fact that that God is a specific God, and, and the Bible is a very precise book. It, it's very hard. We, we say it this way around our counseling center and our church: you, you don't grow in fuzzy land. Um, we have to get down to what are the specific desires, what, what are the specific thoughts, what are the specific words, what are the specific actions. And one of those key passages about growth in the New Testament is Ephesians four twenty-two to twenty-four. It, it's the put off, put on passage. And, and it, it tells us something about growth that is different than the way people in our world often think about growth and change. Because if you ask any, many people, well, how do you change? Well, it's by stopping what's wrong. Well, that, that's not the biblical answer. Biblically, we put off what's wrong, but we replace it with what's right. And that's not just a behavioral concept. That's true in my heart as well. So I could apply that exact same thing to my thinking, that exact same thing to my desires. It's not just a matter of specifically identifying what is wrong that needs to be stopped, but also the discipline of replacing it with what's right. So we often use um, just simple questions to remind us of that around here. One question is, when's a liar no longer a liar? Many would say, well, when he stops lying. No, biblically, when he stops lying and he starts telling the truth. Or when's a thief no longer a thief? Many would say, well, when he stops stealing. No, biblically, when he stops stealing and he starts working and giving. And of course, those are the specific examples that are used later in Ephesians 4, just to flush out what the put-off, put-on principle looks like. And so, how does that apply to the matter of bitterness? As I consider bitter circumstances that are troubling me, One of the questions I have to ask is, what, what are you wanting in that moment? And so, for example, for me as a pastor at the same church for 35 years, what do I want? Well, I want everybody to be pleased with me. I want everybody to think that I'm a good pastor. I want everybody to say nice things about me all the time. You know, that can become an idol. It can become a God that I worship. And you can tell how strong that desire is by how I respond when somebody isn't pleased with me or when somebody is critical of me or when somebody is disappointed with me. And if I'm not careful, that can spin me off into all sorts of bitter responses. Um, I'm going to complain about it. I'm going to gossip about that person. I'm going to be depressed. And and I need to do battle with that at the level of the heart. That's That's an idol. I ought to want to be pleasing to the Lord, but recognizing that in this life I'm imperfect. And so I'm going to disappoint people. I'm going to fail. And instead of lusting after, I must always have people who are always pleased with me, complimenting me. I need to say, listen, my my stand before God is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And my identity is in his righteousness, not mine. Therefore, I'm not going to be ruled by what people think, but I'm also going to be open to their criticism because generally speaking, there's at least a a nugget of truth in everybody's criticism. And if I'm worshiping being always thought of positively, I'm going to miss that growth opportunity. So, So there's a there's a specific desire in response to a bitter circumstance that I just need to do business with. And we could do the exact same thing about our thinking. We can certainly move into bitter speech. You know, even as a pastor, it's possible to talk in a very bitter way. And so now I'm constantly complaining about those people. I'm complaining about the deacons. I'm complaining about the teenagers. I'm complain- it, it, and what a terrible thing for in my case. For a pastor to speak in a bitter way on a habitual basis, instead of representing the good news of Jesus Christ, or to begin acting in a way that is envious of others, or to act in a way that is vindictive toward people who didn't agree with me in a certain way, or to become angry with them because they didn't agree with me. And at some point, this isn't a conversation about the color of the carpet. This is a conversation about bitterness of a heart that is unwilling to allow people to disagree without expressions of anger. And you say, what is that? How did how did the carpet decision become that volatile? It's because we brought bitter hearts. We, we brought unfinished business into the room. And so that's why I have to get down to specific thinking, specific desire, specific words, specific actions. But in the power of the gospel, it's not just a matter of recognizing them. It's a matter of acknowledging them, confessing them, finding forgiveness in them, and actually finding a route to change.
0: And I would just let the listener know that you provide a really helpful chart in this book that guides people through these difficult reflections step by step. And so that's another great benefit of getting a copy of this book is that you can work through that chart. So thank you for offering that tool to us in this resource. Uh, Steve, I also want to finish our conversation by asking you, what does courageous faith have to do with melting away the bitterness in our hearts?
1: Well, the the reason that I used that particular phrase was because I I ended the book by doing an expositional study of the book of Ruth, because Ruth is a fascinating illustration of bitterness from both a negative and a positive perspective. And so, you know, the book starts on a very negative note. You have a a Hebrew woman named Naomi, and um, she and her husband are living during a time of famine with their two sons, and so they decide to go to Moab. And and the Bible's silent on whether that was a good idea or not, but that's what they did. Their sons married two Moabitess women, and then the husband and the sons all died. Terrible, terrible circumstances. And so now you have this Jewish woman, Naomi, and she has two Moabitess daughters-in-law. Now, Naomi was not responsible for those circumstances, bitter circumstances for sure. But you see the way she begins processing them in her heart. And you see it because she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their people. And one of the most important phrases in chapter 1 is, what she tells her daughters-in-law is this, go back to your people and to your gods. And, And the implication is, because my God, Jehovah, has let me down. So you should go back to your people and to your gods. And it's important for all of us to remember that the book of Ruth was written during the time of the Judges. Remember, the book of Judges ends, there was no king in Israel. And everybody did that, which was right in his own eyes. Well, Naomi was, as an individual, what the nation of Israel was as a nation. And that's the way Naomi was living. There's no king. My God has let me down. And what's fascinating is, of course, one of the daughters-in-law takes her up on the offer, but not young Ruth not the young Moabitess. She's the one who says, no, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people are going to be my people. And most importantly, your God is going to be my God. There's courageous faith. And so then they go back to Bethlehem and the women in the town say to Naomi, aren't you Naomi? And it's fascinating what she says. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. In other words the one word that defines my life is mara it's bitterness. And Christine there are people that's true of them too. They are bitter people. You can almost see it on the look of their face that they have be, bitterness has defined them. And then what what she goes on to say she said God took me out full which is fascinating because it was during a time of famine. And then she said and God has brought me back Empty, which is fascinating because who's standing right next to her? Sweet Ruth. And that tells us something very important about bitterness. It'll make a liar out of us every time. The the more bitter I am, the less accurately I am able to describe what has happened to me. And I'll tell you, if the book of Ruth only had one chapter, it'd be a very, very sad book in the Bible. But what happens is in the very next chapter, Sweet Ruth, not Naomi, Sweet Ruth says, what about if I go out and glean today? She's the one who's putting her faith in the Old Testament principle of gleaning. And she does. And what does God do? He blesses Ruth's young faith in amazing ways. And remember, it had been a time of famine. By the time that book is over, those ladies are swimming in barley. But then you have chapter three, and this is what I love. That's when Naomi, the mother-in-law, comes to Ruth and suggests that she goes and makes an overture to Boaz. What in the world is Naomi doing? And I believe her bitterness is melting. I believe her faith is growing. And I think that's one of the reasons we can have great hope. Naomi was not stuck in chapter one because her faithful daughter-in-law came alongside her exemplified faith, Naomi followed that example. And of course, God blessed those two ladies in incredible ways. There's a marvelous wedding and then there's a birth. And so Boaz and Ruth have a little baby boy, but here's what's fascinating. When you get to chapter four, what the Bible says and what the ladies of the town say is a baby has been born, not to Ruth, a baby's been born to Naomi. And Naomi, the grandma, is bouncing this little baby on her lap. People are asking what, they're gonna, what Naomi is going to name them. It was just a fascinating evidence of God's incredible grace. And of course, we know from the perspective of the New Testament, that wasn't just any baby. That was a baby who was in the line of David. Remember, there's no king in Israel. Well, there's going to be in the line of David, who is then in the line of Christ, And it just shows that everything we've been talking about today, that the marvelous power sovereignly of our God to work out difficult circumstances in a way that can increase our faith and deliver us from bitterness, God's powerful enough to do that. Thank
0: you for pointing us to that story. And you go a lot more in depth, like I said, in the particular book, but we are all out of time today. And so I want to be sure that I invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening today who just feels stuck in bitterness. What would you say to this person to encourage them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ?
1: Well, you know, anytime I have the opportunity to record a a podcast like this, part of my prayer beforehand is just that the Lord would use this in the hearts and lives of every person who might be driving in their car and listening or, or sitting in their home. And I try to envision what kind of persons might the Lord allow to sometime listen to this. My greatest interest and concern or first would be those who don't yet know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And if there's someone who's listening to this who would say, well, I, I don't have the kind of personal relationship with God that would allow me to process this the way we're discussing, I, I hope they'll find someone who can help them come to a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. His shed blood is there to help me be forgiven and restored. And, and then for someone who would say, look, I, I know uh, guilty as charged. I mean, I'm a, I'm a bitter person. There's no doubt about it. And I see the evidence of it. Friend, I hope you'll find someone who can help you process that. I hope you'll find someone who is a biblical counselor, um, someone who is able to talk with you, to hear what's going on in your heart and life at the appropriate time and the appropriate way, take you to the truth of the word of God, to the power of the gospel. You, you don't have to be a Naomi chapter one person forever. I think that's kind of the summary. The, the book of Ruth has four chapters, not one. And just because I might be living in a bad chapter doesn't mean I'm living in the final chapter. And, and these bitter circumstances, I know that they're hard, but they can lead us to Christ. And, and here's the last thing I would say. You know, the Passover meal was designed by God for this very reason. And he told his children, the children of Israel, every year to have that meal. And it always started with bitter herbs. That was Egyptian food. Bitter herbs, food that was indigenous to Egypt. So God did not want them to completely forget what their enslavement had been like. And you can imagine eating a meal, bitter herbs. Wow. But it doesn't end there. Then you have unleavened bread. And who doesn't love freshly baked bread? And now the sensation is changing. But what is that preparing you for? Well, it's the delicious, savory taste of the Passover lamb. And so as we're authentic about what's happening with bitterness in our life, it can take us more richly to a relationship with our wonderful Savior that is life-giving and life-sustaining, and the kind of sweetness that only comes from Him.
0: Well, thank you so much for those words of encouragement. I wonder if there's somebody listening who wants to get connected with you and your ministry and the number of books that you've written, do you have a place online where they can where they can find you and connect with those resources?
1: Our church's website is faithlafayette.org, and um, that just shows the various cluster of ministries that we're involved in. It has all of our contact information, my email and all that sort of thing. I'm more than happy as my schedule allows to interact with people who might have additional questions or to connect them with someone who might be closer to them that can help them get um, additional resources and help. So always go to our website and feel free to contact me if I can serve you.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk about your book, Overcoming Bitterness, Moving from Life's Greatest Hurts to a Life Filled with Joy. I was so blessed by this conversation. I hope our listeners have been as well. So thank you so much for joining us for the show today.
1: Christina, it was a privilege to talk with you today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.